How do you follow that? That's what I want to know. Amazing. Uh, between Marcus and our trio here. Uh, just, I hope that your affections are being stirred this morning uh, for King Jesus. I hope that it is uh, a celebration for you and that hope is filling your heart and mind. Uh, if you are with us and this is your first time and you're a visitor uh, um, or you're, you're a reoccurring visitor, we have a connection card. We would love for you to fill this out for us. And this is a way for us to come alongside of you uh, to be able to help answer questions, uh, meet needs, pray with you. If you're someone who's investigating the claims of King Jesus, uh, we would love to enter into that dialogue with you and come alongside of you uh, and help, help answer some of your questions. Uh, I uh, just, you know, a word uh, before I get going here, would just say this to you. Um, it is a great privilege for me to be here and get to speak to you on Easter Sunday. My name is Brett. I'm an elder here in the church and work with a ministry called Campus Outreach. And uh, I am so grateful. And, and it was said of Michelangelo when he was painting um, the fresco uh, of, of uh, the, the uh, Last Supper, it said that he pulled away for uh, a, a day and he had prayer and meditation. And then when, it, when he went to paint the face of Jesus, it said that his hand shook. It, he trembled at the idea that he was going to set a picture, a trajectory. He was going to shape the way that people thought about Jesus at the Last Supper. I tremble this morning as I come before you to present the Word of God on the day of such celebration. And so the only thing I know how to do when I tremble before the Lord and before you is to go to the Lord in prayer. So would you do that with me? Father, we thank you for your holy word. Jesus, as you prayed in the garden, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Set us apart by that truth. I pray this morning as Psalms 119, 18 says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. And I pray, Father, that you would open for many of us, as, as this passage is a familiar passage, that, God, you would give us new insight, new understanding. And for those that have never encountered this Scripture passage, that, Father, your glories would come leaping off the page. I pray for those in this room right now that may be investigating the claims of you, Jesus. I pray that you would answer their questions, that you would meet them where they're at, and great physician, that you would work deeply on their heart as only you can. Lord, we trust you in these moments together. Amen. Well, uh, our passage this morning is 2 Corinthians 5.21. You can go ahead and turn there. It's going to take me a couple minutes uh, to get us, to work us to our passage. Uh, so, But if you want to go ahead and, and turn over to 2 Corinthians 5.21, that would be great. That's where we're going to be. Just one passage, one verse. Uh, it is my hope that maybe by the end of this time, you may have this verse memorized. Let me set it up like this. Our title for our uh, time is called The Greatest Exchange. And I began to think about how can I go about setting the stage for the greatest exchange. And maybe I would say this. Let me talk to you for a minute about bad exchanges. Let me tell you a bad exchange that I had uh, when I was uh, in, in grade school. I was about the third grade, grew up in Jacksonville, Arkansas, right outside of Little Rock. Uh, and I remember being in, in, we had two recreation times um, uh, throughout the day, and so one was around 10.30, one was around uh, 2.30, and we'd get out of school at about 3.30. They knew uh, they needed a little recreation before they finalized math class and, and leave school for the day. And, and I remember one of my friends, um, 
He actually wasn't a friend. He actually was an acquaintance. One of my acquaintances uh, had a airhead. Uh, anybody know what an airhead is? Nope, a couple. Okay, a couple people. A lot of the kids are like, yes, <laughs> right now, like one. Uh, but, uh, but it's a piece of candy, okay? Uh, and I remember seeing this airhead and going, I really want that airhead. Now, I had a $1.25 on me. There was a little store right down the street from me, uh, and it was called Mike's. Uh, and Mike sold all these different types of candy, uh, and he sold it at a pretty good price. And, and uh, I could get an airhead at Mike's for 25 cents. But my acquaintance at this class had an airhead on site. And I, I went and asked him, and that was my biggest mistake. Hey, man, you know, would you sell me that airhead? Here's 25 cents. And he knew the moment that I asked that he had me, that he was going to get over on the exchange. And so he said, hey, you know, I'll tell you what, Brett, how bad do you want it? I said, man, I, I would really like it. And he, and he pitched it at me. He goes, I'll tell you what, I'll sell it to you for 75 cents right now. And I was like, no, it's only worth 25 cents. And he was like, it just became a dollar. And I was like, I don't want it. And he was like, okay, fine. But every time I would walk by to the bathroom or get up to do a, a problem on the board, whatever I was doing, he just tried to take the airhead and keep it in front of me. And for lack of better terms, I'll use a biblical term, I began to lust after that airhead. I really wanted that airhead bad. I got to have this airhead. And so I made it to the final recess time. We got out on the playground, and sure enough, I mean, he's holding it up loud and proud for me to see. And I said, okay, okay, I'll give you the dollar. He goes, no, 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 you have $1.25, right? I'm like, I have $1.25. He goes, give it all. Dang it. So I gave him my $1.25, which would get me five airheads if I just waited an extra hour. And, and I scarfed down the watermelon airhead, and I remember thinking, as soon as I finished it, that was a bad move. That was a bad exchange. Other bad exchanges that have happened. Maybe I'll, I'll take you to the sports world. I like sports. Love basketball. Uh, take you to the NBA with me. In 1995, um, the Charlotte Hornets uh, went 41 and 41. They decided if we're going to be a championship team, we need a big man. We need someone who's seven foot, seven one. We need a big man. Uh, but in the draft that year, uh, I think they had like the 13th pick um, in 1996, and they picked a high school student right out of high school to come on their team. And they took him on, and, and they get a phone call from the Los Angeles Lakers. And lo and behold, the Charlotte Hornets traded Kobe Bryant. For Vladi Dibok, <laughs> okay? All right, Kobe Bryant would be a five-time NBA champion, two-time NBA Finals MVP, 17 times NBA All-Star appearance, and he was L.A.'s all-time uh, um, leading scorer. Now, that's over Magic Johnson, Wilt Chamberlain, over everybody. Kobe Bryant owns that. So some trades are bad, and they set your franchise back. Some trades absolutely tank you. And they missed a franchise player when they traded Kobe Bryant to the Los Angeles Lakers. But what's the worst trade that's ever happened? What's the trade that's so bad that we don't even want to think about it? It's actually written in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. And here was the trade. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and God told Adam and Eve in the garden um, Adam, you will be my representative in all the garden. You will represent me. Uh, you are made in my likeness. You are made in my image. You have dominion. You have leadership over everything. It is for you, Adam. So Adam had 
the representation of God in the garden. Adam also had a blameless record out of innocence. He had no sin. He did not know sin in the garden up until this point. Adam also walked with God in the garden. He had communion with God in the garden. And many of you know the story in Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes into the garden and and, uh, the serpent comes in and the serpent says this to Eve. The serpent says to Eve, uh, has God told you to surely not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And it wasn't the sight of the fruit that made Eve want the apple. It was what God told her she would get with the fruit. And here's where humanity went wrong. Here's where we made the baddest, the worst exchange we've ever made. Because in that moment, what Eve chose is the words of Satan. And this is what Satan said. If you have this apple, God knows you will be like him. He knows that you will be as mighty as him, that you will have control over everything just like him, that you will think his thoughts and that he will no longer be your leader. That's exactly what Satan was promising in the garden. But what did Adam and Eve get instead? Their representation of all creation at that moment was marred. Their uh, idea of sin became a reality, and now they had sin on their record. And God said, get out of the garden. No more communion and fellowship here. God moved Adam and Eve out. Ultimately, what they got was death. That was their exchange. Do you see why it's the worst exchange in all of history? From every war to every bad thought to every sinful action to every prideful statement, every sin links back to a self-independence from God. Every sin links back to a self-independence away from God. I don't need God. And that becomes our condition. And that's what we're entering into our passage on. And so let's read 2 Corinthians 5.21 together. It reads like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. And I want you to, to note this. Paul outs us from the very beginning. Paul, Paul tries to get you to, to go ahead and buy into one idea. He says, for our sake. For our sake means this. There is a condition that is not good to God. If you can accept this on the front end of our conversation, it will be much easier for all of us. And that is this statement. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We have broken God's holy standard. Romans 3.23 says, all has fallen short of the glory of God. All has fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one person on planet earth who has walked perfectly and under God's law. And so, Paul starts off and just tells us our condition. The Father says, or Jesus says about the Father in Matthew 5.48, he says, um, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's Matthew 5, 48. You've got to be perfect. God's expectation of me and you is that we would be perfect under God's law. Now, I know what you're probably thinking if you're just hearing this for the first time. Well, who in the heck can accomplish that? 
who is actually perfect? I remember in college uh, being in a physics class, and my friend Dave Probst will probably laugh at this, uh, but I remember being in this physics class, and I remember um, uh, scoring really bad on my first test and going, man, I hope everyone else scores bad. And the reason why I hoped everyone else scored bad is so that we would get a curve. A curve is let me offset the standard uh, based upon your competence, based upon your performance. God does not curve. Please hear me say that. God does not curve. So our condition is really bad because it says in the Bible um, under Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23a. That means for me and for you that if we've sinned even one time, we deserve death. But let's just be honest. Let's be honest together for a second about our condition. Let's just say that you are a really good person. And maybe you just sin in thought, in deed, action, motive. Maybe you just sin just three times a day. A prideful moment, a lust of the eye, something slips from your mouth that shouldn't have come out of your mouth, something that you say. Maybe you just sin just three times a day. How many sins would that give you over the course of a year? That's over a thousand sins in one year. Let's just say you live to be 70 years old. How many sins are on your record by the time you're 70 years old? You have 70,000 sins on our record, right? Just hypothetically. Now, I would suggest to you, you probably sin more than three times a day, okay? But maybe the best person in here, three times a day. How crazy would it be, how ludicrous would it be if you walked into a courtroom, okay, and, and you were watching this guy, and he's talking with this judge, and he's saying, Judge, I'm really, 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 really sorry. Please, please, please forgive me. But he has 70,000 parking tickets, What's going to happen to that person? He is going to be judged for continually breaking the law. When I ask people, describe God for me. What's he like? This is what they say to me. Brett, God is love. Amen. He is love. But here's what their definition actually means for them. God is love means I can do whatever I want, no matter how God feels about it, and God is going to love me enough to sweep it under the rug and forget about it. But that's actually not God's definition of love for me and for you. For the Bible says in John 3.16, For God so what? Loved the world that he swept all their sins under the rug. That's not what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his most prized possession. Why would he do that? Because God, according to Jeremiah 9.24, is a God who delights in steadfast love. It is his love that, that is moving him to act upon your behalf if you are a sinner. But he is a God who also delights in justice and in righteousness. And because he, he has love for you and for me, and he sees our condition that he has to punish sin, it is his character to punish our sin. And the only punishment for sin, there's only one in all of the Bible, and that is death, eternal 
separation from God. So God acts in love. Many of you know my sweet wife, and you've been praying for her. Uh, you know that we had our, our third daughter, uh, March 4th, uh, Vera Grace, and we had an incredible labor. We had the baby at our house. It was during a snowstorm. It was awesome. It was awesome. She did great. So proud of her. But a couple days after Vera Grace was born, my wife started having uh, fevers at night. And she would go a few days on with a fever and then a, a day off and a few days on. And we, just, we were just trying to fight it. Hey, we, we don't want to go to the hospital. We don't want to pay the hospital bills. We're just trying to stay away from that. So we're just trying to fight the fever and hoping it's going to go away. We're taking some over-the-counter meds. You know, my wife, you know, she's just trying to drink a bunch of water, and she's drinking a bunch of water trying to make it go away. Well, uh, a couple weeks ago, we realized it's not going to go away. In fact, she had pain all night long. Uh, and uh, the next day, around mid-afternoon, I walked in, and she's feeding our daughter, Vera Grace, and she's slumped in this chair, and she's just dripping with sweat. And I looked at my wife, and I said, something is really, really wrong. Way to be, Einstein. Way to be. <laughs> so I call my, my friend, Grant McWilliams, and Grant's on a run, and he's, he's running, and he's huffing and puffing. Hey, this is Grant McWilliams. Hey, Grant, this is Brett. Hey, let me pull off real quick. So he stops his run to have this conversation with me. So he goes out of his way to have this conversation with me and enjoy the phone. Let me ask you a couple questions. And he begins to give us these questions, one after the next. And we go, you know, this is what we got, this, this yes, this, no, that. And, and all this to say, Grant said, this is serious. You need to go to the emergency room. To which I thought, if I'm being brutally honest, the emergency room costs a lot of money. <laughs> I don't want to go to the emergency room right now. Okay, so I start brainstorming other options. <laughs> I start giving Grant, hey, what about this or what about that? And Grant can tell. He can tell. You, you guys are very reluctant, so I got I to tell you straight, and I got to give it to you serious. If you don't go to the hospital, this is going to kill your wife. Okay, <laughs> I pick up the phone, and we call Dave and Jan, and they come, and they grab our girls, and we rush to the hospital, and we sit in this really small emergency room, and Anna's just sweating, and, uh, and they, we basically find out she has an infection in her belly. The infection was about six inches long and was only getting worse to the point where uh, eventually it got to the point where they, ha they said, hey, we're, we're going to treat it with some antibiotics, and they tried to hit it with some antibiotics, but they got to the point where they said, we have to do surgery. So they brought us up to OB, and, 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 and literally, we, we showed up on the floor in OB, and then about 20 minutes later, Anna Joy was in surgery. It was just a very frightening experience. Afterwards, Anna Joy's coming, being rolled back in. It's about an hour surgery, and she's being rolled back in. And Anna Joy is, you know, she's kind of on the meds, and so she's just saying whatever, and this is the kind of stuff she's saying. Oh, you did so wonderful holding that tool, and thank you for doing the medicine right, and doctor, you're great, and... And it's just so funny, and oh, it's Brad, and she's hugging me, and she's not remembering any of this, just being so sweet. The doctor came right up to me, and this is what the doctor said. The antibiotics would not have done anything for you. You needed to have surgery. We needed to cut it out, and then the antibiotics would work. I imagine many of you are here today under the misconception if I just have a little bit of spiritual antibiotics, if I just come to church, maybe 
this fever inside of me will go away. But I'm here to tell you today that our great physician says there has to be a surgery. And that great physician is willing to do the surgery today. Let me tell you what he's done for you. For our sake, God outs us, he knows our condition, and he expresses his love for us. And so what does he do? He sends a representative for me and for you. Because you've fallen in sin, because you cannot uh, be perfect anymore, because you've already blown it, and the only penalty for blowing it is death, you needed someone to represent you. Let me tell you three characteristics of this representative. The first is this. He has to be fully human. Hebrews 2, 7, 17 and 18 says this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which simply means a pleasing sacrifice for the sins of the people. For... Because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen to me. You have a high priest in Jesus who knows your sufferings. He knows your brokenness. He knows your hurts. He knows your temptations. And because of his compassion, he came to take them away. And that time is coming. And that's what the resurrection declares. If Jesus really rose, all the things that he said he was going to do, he is going to do and has already done. And one of those things is that you would one day be brought into heaven out of sin completely, away from the presence of sin. Jesus has promised that. He is fully human. We see his humanity as he lays on the back of a boat during a hurricane, and Jesus is dead asleep. We see his humanity in John chapter 4 uh, at, the, um, uh, at the well with the woman of Samaritan, the Samaritan woman. We see Jesus send his disciples on, and he has to sit down because he's tired. We know he is human. We know he was born from the birth canal of Mary. God, almighty, all infinite, Sovereign creator of the universe who has no insufficiencies, none, becomes a baby. Now, my daughter is a month and a day old, Vera Grace. She can barely hold up her head. She can't feed herself. She can't clean herself. She is completely, utterly reliant upon her parents. If I put her out in the woods, she would die. There's nothing she could do about it. How does God Almighty, our great representative, show his great love for me and for you? He humbles himself by becoming a human. He becomes marginalized. He, he, he gets to a point where he, he has the same limitations that any human has. He has to sleep. He has to use the restroom. He has to eat. He needs water. He needs all of these things so that he can sympathize with me and with you. He is fully human fully man. But he can't just be fully man because if he dies and he's fully man, the sacrifice is only for one man. He has to be God in the flesh. And here's why. So that the value of his sacrifice is eternal. 
So when Jesus comes and dies for me and for you, this is why Jesus only dies one time. Forever, if he dies in your place, that death is considered forever on your account. Forever. This is what the Bible says in Galatians 4, 4 4-5. Catch this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. There's his deity, born of a woman. There's his humanity. Luke 1.35 says it like this, The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born, humanity, will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's his deity. He is both perfectly. Jesus is fully man, and Jesus is fully God. But there's one more component to him being your substitution or being your representative. He has to be perfect or he is an unacceptable sacrifice. When Jesus raises from the dead, it is a declaration to all of the nations that his sacrifice or the, or the check cashed. It went through. When Jesus raises from the dead, your sin and my sin are paid for. But why? Because Jesus was perfect. First Peter 119 puts it like this, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That was Jesus, without blemish or spot. In the Old Testament, they would uh, have a sacrificial system, and they would only bring in a perfect lamb to be slaughtered as a means for uh, reminding the people of God that God will punish sin, and that one day God will send a Savior who has no blemish to be punished in our place. So Jesus is perfect. The sinless Christ, I, I, I encourage you, meditate on the power, the, the, the focus it would take to be sinless even for a day. And Jesus went his whole life. In John eight forty six, Jesus uses the word, which one of you convicts me of my sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? In Luke 23, 4, Pilate is trying to find something wrong with Jesus, and this is his conclusion. I find no guilt in this man. On the, th- the thief on the cross to, to his left, Luke 23, 47, says, certainly this man was innocent. Even the centurions that crucified Christ, when it was done, it said they praised God. Certainly this man is innocent. Nothing he has done is wrong. That's Luke 23, 47. Here is my point. If you were to look at the scriptures and you look at the gospel and then you begin to flush out what his disciples said about him, like Acts 3, 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one, no sin. Uh, uh, 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Listen, I could do this a lot more times. My point is this. There is nothing in scripture absolutely nothing that points to that Jesus may have even the possibility of sin. He had no sin. So when me and you feel tempted, sometimes we give in. We, we, we um, take away the temptation by giving in to sin. Jesus rode every temptation out to its fullest degree with no sin. This is an amazing thing. The Father says of Jesus in in Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Matthew 17, 5, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
Jesus says of himself and the Father in John 10, 30, we are one. We are in perfect communion with one another. This representative is an acceptable sacrifice if you want him. How good is good enough? It's got to be perfection. And this is the only one who is willing to die in your place, who has a perfect life to be able to do it. Jesus is the Son of God. And so what is he, how does he want to do it? Jesus wants to take, as your representative, he wants to take your record. He does three things to take, uh, undertaking your record. The first is this, that Jesus actually takes the penalty for your sin. I've already said this, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.20 says that the expectation for sin is death. Jesus takes on full death. He is a man who is acquainted with suffering and grief. His whole life, not just in the cross, his whole life was a life of suffering. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, it says Jesus was fully tempted by Satan. In Hebrews 5, 7 through 8, this gives us such an intimate picture of Christ and what his prayer life would have looked like and some of the temptations that he faced. This shows you he is human. In those days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. Jesus suffered for you, but you know the story. You've read it before. They come and they, and Jesus, you see him in the garden. How much does he love you? Father, if this cup of wrath that is coming right at me, if, if, if there is another way, Father, may it be removed. And God the Father said, there is no other way. This must happen. And Jesus focuses all of his energy to be the meek, mild, lamb who is spotless who will be slaughtered and so he goes mistrial after mistrial you know what it feels like to be misrepresented it's so hard not to speak up and say that's a lie you're lying to these people tell them the truth about me but they make up one thing after the next there is psychological sufferings uh to or temptations here uh there there is physical pain. They literally put a bag over his head and each one of them took shots at him, punching him, going, if you are a great prophet, that they talk about in Deuteronomy 18, 18, tell us which one of us hit you. On the road to Calvary, one strike after the next, they scourge him. Pilate watches as this injustice happens. He's betrayed by one of his closest disciples. Even the disciple that said, I'm willing to die for you, watches from a distance and curses God in the process to not be connected to Jesus. Can you imagine all of this chaos? The Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, keeps his focus. And to think that was enough, once they drive the the nails into his hands and his feet, he turns around and says this prayer. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How great a love is that to bless and pray for your enemies? This is the Son of God, the perfect one, the one that the Father is pleased with, who he hears his prayers, and he's praying for his enemies. 
Then he gets on the cross and gets mocked and then tells someone, today you will be with me in paradise. It says in, in Matthew, at the end of Matthew, it says that Jesus could have called down six legions of angels. I think each, each legion of angels is about a thousand angels. In the Old Testament, I think one angel struck down 180,000 people, no sweat. This is, you're talking about extermination at his fingertips. And even when they mocked him on the cross, look at you. You said you're the son of God. If you're really the son of God, come off the cross. He can heal other people. Look at him. He can't even heal himself. And all the while, Jesus is focused on paying the debt for your sin. He's focused on a greater victory. And so while Satan is looking on, cheering, this is his triumphant moment, he sees the victim is about to become the victor. Three days later, he'll come up out of the grave and he will declare your sins, your penalty paid for. I was at a New Year's conference a couple years, about six years ago. There was a man by the name of Aaron Keyes playing there and Aaron wrote a song and the song was called Not Guilty Anymore. And Aaron actually told the story of the song before he sang it. And this was the story. This is when flat screens had first just come out and he had got a new flat screen TV and he kind of put it on the wall and he set up the surround sound. He's about to watch the big game and, uh, and he's so excited and his little four-year-old boy comes in with a baseball and he just, boom, right in the middle of the TV, bang, TV's busted. Get out of my face. Go to your room and don't ever come out ever. I don't even want to see you in my peripheral. Out of here. He hears a little boy crying in that bedroom and he knows he has to go and restore this little boy. So he goes into the bedroom, and the little boy's crying, and he's prostrate on the bed, and his, his pillow is filled with tears. And he says, son, look at me. And his son is full of shame. His son is full of guilt. His son knows, I just did something really bad. Can't even look at his dad. And he took his son's head, and he lifted up his head, and he looked at him face to face, and he said, son, look at me. You are not guilty anymore. Listen to me. Some of you need to hear this today. You need God the Father to lift your head because of the death of Jesus Christ. And for God the Father to say to you, no matter what you're coming out of, no matter how terrible a sin that you've done, you are not guilty anymore if you want Jesus. That is really good news. And because he rose from the dead, that's guaranteed news. But Jesus just does not leave us not guilty. Our penalty paid in full. Jesus doesn't just leave us there because that would hit the restart button, and we know we're probably going to sin again. So Jesus does something else even more amazing. On the cross, Jesus cries out, It is finished. The penalty was paid in full, but the righteousness was also paid in full. Jesus was perfect all the way to the point to where he consummated his spirit to God the Father. Complete righteousness, no sin on his record. Everything on Jesus' record that pleased the Father, all of his perfect thoughts, all of his perfect prayers, all of his perfect actions, all gets put on the Christian forever. When God looks at you positionally and he looks at, at you, he sees Jesus' perfect record. And he says, righteous, holy, pleasing, this is my beloved child. 
So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says that you, are, you went from being a child of wrath, a son of the devil. You, you, you followed your rebellion. You followed your idolatry. You followed uh, your bitterness. You followed your laziness. You, you, you followed um, all of these murder and, and adultery and sexual sin, whatever it is, you followed this way, you were a child of wrath. You were going to experience God's full condemnation. But because of Jesus, now you are a child of God. All the while, the angels in heaven who stand before a perfect and holy God, they see his righteousness. They see the performance. They see Jesus doing this, and they see it applied to me and to you. And the Bible says they marvel. They marvel at your righteousness. They marvel that God could love someone who functionally walks away from him, but God says positionally is perfect. They marvel. So Jesus has paid for your sin, the penalty. Jesus has given you a perfect righteousness. And because of your penalty paid for and because of your perfect righteousness, the Bible says that God has reconciled you to himself as a child. That means you were at odds, and the Bible says you are now reconciled to King Jesus, through King Jesus. The Bible's got very, very important things to say about what he does with your sin. I'll just give you a couple. Your sin, in Psalms 103.12, says he removes the believer's sin as far as the east is from the west. The east and the west never touch. Your sin is gone. Isaiah 43, 25 says, promised, uh, he promised to never remember your sin. Micah 7, 19 says, he has casted your sin into the depths of the sea. Your sin is removed. God's righteousness is applied. You are now back in relationship with Christ. That's an amazing thing that God would have for me and for you. If we truly understood what I just said, if you truly got it, and if you truly were in relationship with Christ, this could only move your affections to want to follow your new representative. Your new representative becomes your new leader, and your new leader leads you down a new road. This is how you know if you're a Christian or not. If your lifestyle is not one of repentance and desiring to please God, you are probably not a Christian. See, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, two things happen. One is you enter into a relationship with God, reconciled. But you also enter into a new relationship with your sin. I don't want it anymore. I'm getting away from my sin because I love Jesus. See, the Son of God has set you free. This is Romans 8, 2. He has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But he has set you free to be free to worship him with your life. And how do you worship Something that you love with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your life, with all of your talents, with all of your treasures, with all of your time. He is your all in all. When you start talking about Jesus and someone says, is it like you worship him or something? I do. I do worship him. Because he was fully man, fully God, and he humbly died on the cross for my sin. And so that leads us down a new road. Because Jesus walked the dark road to Calvary, you walk a well-lit road to heaven. That road to Calvary was hard, but he went down that road for your sake and for my sake. Your path 
that you may currently be on or were on at some point was a path to destruction. Listen, I know what it's like to feel that fever inside. And, and like in a joy, the fever comes and the fever goes. So maybe circumstances hit and you lose your job. Or maybe you lose that loved one and you just don't have an explanation, which I understand. Maybe you didn't get the grade that you wanted in that class. Maybe somebody cheated on you and you are just hurting. You're just broken. And the fever comes and you go, I, I just need some spi- something spiritual in my life. I, I, just, I need God. You know that you need God. But then soon the fever goes away and you say, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. That infection is inside. And unless Jesus cuts it out, it will destroy you. I experienced this a couple years ago with a young man in a fraternity. I met with him regularly, talked with him often, shared the gospel with him, and he kept telling me, I'll do it later, maybe later. I was at his funeral a couple years ago. He committed suicide. He'd been drugged up for most of the evening, and at the end of the evening, committed suicide. And I'm sitting there, and it's kind of a remembrance service, and his parents are sitting over here to the left, and I just, I just remember seeing they're, they're just distraught, and they should be. They lost their son. And I'm looking at his fraternity brothers, and, and they come walking up one by one, and they say, man, he was just an awesome partier. This is how they described him, awesome partier. He was, uh, man, he was just so much fun. Man, he just, he just knew how to live life, and knew, he knew how to live free. No one was speaking any truth, and so I came up, and, and I had shared with him and one of his buddies, and one of his buddies had come from Dallas, and I just caught him out of the corner of my eye as I was beginning to quote this verse, John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And as I was quoting that, I looked out of the corner of my eye, and there was this kid named Colton, and he was quoting it with me. And I went down to Colton, and I said, Colton, you realize what you just quoted? He said, I realize it. I've memorized this verse. Colton, what is keeping you from Jesus? I cannot part with my lifestyle. How is that going for you? It's, it's not going well. It keeps eating my lunch, but I have a, a, a greater hope that maybe one day I'll be a good businessman and, and drinking along the way will satisfy. It won't. Nothing can numb the ultimate destruction that will come your way without Jesus Christ. And Jesus lovingly went to the cross for you. His path is a path of life. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why can no one come to the Father but through Jesus? Because he is fully God, he is fully man, and he lived a perfect life. Buddha will not do. Hinduism will not do. Allah will not do. Muhammad will not do. There's only one sacrifice that will do, and that is King Jesus, and he rose from the dead. He has risen indeed. And so the statement of Joshua, I say to you now, choose this day whom you will serve. Will you continue to represent yourself on your record, down your road, or will you make the greatest exchange that God has made possible for you? Will you trade your representation for King Jesus representing you? Will you trade Jesus' record for your record? Will you trade your road of destruction for his road of life? On his end, it doesn't seem like a very good trade. 
but because his love is so great for me and for you, he wants you to make that trade today. Don Richardson was a missionary to Papua New Guinea. He began to share his faith uh, among a tribe and uh, was having a hard time helping them understand the gospel. And uh, Don Richardson uh, got to the point in the story of the gospel where Judas walks up and kisses Jesus on the cheek. And he noticed something in the tribe. They all cheered. They were all excited when Judas did this. Judas was their hero. Jesus was the, the guy that got, he was the bad guy to them. Their highest value was treachery. And they valued Judas. And he was just so discouraged, so distraught. How do I help them understand the gospel? This tribe was at war with another tribe. And one day, uh, Richardson walks around the corner and he sees the two tribes lined up. He sees tribal leader looking at tribal leader. He sees the elders of the tribes and he sees the warriors of, um, of the tribes, each tribe looking at each other. And he thinks war may happen right now. And then a peculiar scene comes. He sees the wife of the tribal leader with their baby son. And he sees uh, the tribal leader take the son from the mama. And the mama falls down weeping. He kisses his son and he takes his son down the line. And each of the tribal leaders and each of the warriors touch the son on his head. And then he does the unthinkable. He crosses the line to go to the other tribe and he takes his son and he hands his son to the other tribal leader. And the other tribal leader touches the son's head and walks the son all the way down the line uh, of the other tribe and their warriors. And then the tribe leaves with his son, only to leave the father there with the mother weeping. Their son is gone now. Richardson wondered, this is such a peculiar thing. What, what is this? And so later in the day, he asked an elder uh, of, of that tribe, he said, what was that? He said, well, you are aware we've had warring for multiple generations. That child is called a peace child. And as long as that child is alive in the other camp, as long as that child is alive, there will be peace between us and them. Christian, hear me today. As long as Jesus is alive, sitting on the throne, you ha are forgiven forever. You are righteous forever. As long as Jesus, our great high priest who intercedes for us, is alive, you are forgiven for those that are seeking out the possibility of giving your life to Christ. Today, you can see the Father lift your head because of Jesus and say, you are not guilty anymore. Let me take away the infection that's killing you. We're about to take communion in a second. What a great way to celebrate this Lord's Day and Easter. If you are a believer from a different church, we want to say to you, this is the Lord's table. It's not Cape Bible Chapel's table. Please join us in celebrating communion together. There's three things that I would love to see happen at communion. One is that if there's any sin in your life, believer or someone who's seeking Jesus right now, go ahead and confess your sin. Repentance literally means this. I turn from my unrighteous ways. I turn from my wretchedness. And I turn and I agree with God about my sin. And I say, God, forgive me. And please, I believe that you will heal me. So this is a time to repent. If there's relationships that need to be reconciled, I, I, I encourage you, whether you were right or wrong, to approach the other person where you need reconciliation. And lastly, communion is a time of rejoicing.
that King Jesus is preparing a place for me and for you, and we will dine with him for all eternity. I'll be down here uh, to pray for anyone who needs prayer, um, and the band is going to come and, and uh, play for us as we do this time. Let's pray together. As long as you are alive, King Jesus, there is peace between us and the Father. And those grand words in Luke 24, why do you seek the living among the dead? For he has risen just as he said he would. Oh, Jesus, thank you for rising. And you have truly forgiven us. You have forgiven our deepest sin, our greatest guilt and shame. I pray you would continue to do that. I pray you would save many in this room this very hour. And I pray for those that have come today to celebrate Easter. Oh, God, that what we just explained is true because your son rose from the grave. So meet us now as we take communion together. For your beautiful name. If you had not loved me first